Severa, Mario Balotelli, Kevin Prince-Berting and Dani Alves are just some of football's most decorated players to have endured racial abuse from fans in the past few seasons. For the past 18 months, Dr Mark Deutsch, a sports sociologist based in Brighton, has been studying the efforts of three of Europe's biggest clubs to fight racism in their grounds. And this month, he presented his findings to UEFA at their headquarters in Geneva. I caught up with him to discuss his report. He started by explaining how he picked his case studies. I used uh, Legia Warsaw in Poland, uh, Borussia Dortmund in Dortmund in uh, Germany, and uh, Roma in Italy. Um, the reason for these clubs was twofold, really. One was to have um, a representative of a club from the north, south, and east of Europe, so you get a, a fairly wide geographical spread. The other one was really, and this was through uh, discussions with UEFA, that the club should be of sufficient size, but also have a bit of contestation within the fan groups. You know, so there wasn't a, a uniform fan group um, or have a particular political persuasion. Because in, in Italy especially, um, fan groups often have political persuasions and some of them would be seen as left-wing or right-wing. So the left-wing groups would automatically sort of incorporate anti-racism into their sort of uh, approach. Whereas if you chose a club that was, for example, like Roma, which had a mixture of different groups and political persuasions, then you get this sense of contest and a, and a real sense of what is happening on the ground. Okay, so if we yeah, looking at Italy specifically, just this just this week we've seen that uh, one of Italy's most prominent black players, uh, Mario Balotelli, was racially abused as he trained with the national team ahead of uh, the World Cup this summer. What are the Italian clubs like Roma doing to counteract this? Um, that's an excellent question. Um, it's a very easy answer. Uh, very little is the answer. It's a simple answer. One of the recommendations I made for my report to UEFA is the importance of football clubs and that if they can support uh, anti-racism measures, then for, or particularly in Poland and in uh, Italy. And this it automatically gets rejected by people who don't see themselves as left-wing. So they just see it as this liberal lefty thing that, that they don't want to be in incorporated in um, or told what to think. Whereas when the football club takes it on board, then it removes it from that, it's still political, but it removes it from that ideologically political position and shows that this is a, you know, it's a human right. It's, a, it's common sense. It's a normal thing that should be done. And one of my recommendations to UEFA was that Borussia Dortmund, to me, were the model club who were taking real um, interest in this and taking it seriously. Um, I used um, a picture of uh, Gundogan, uh, one of their players, um, holding up a, a, a club scarf saying against racism. And this is something you could buy in the shop. And the club also support a fan project in Dortmund, which runs modules, education modules on uh, civil courage, which is about engaging in um, civil interaction without resorting to violence assertiveness in public uh, and also one on intercultural learning and another one on um, racism and, and the far right um, they held the, hold these within the club stadium and they get a club tour at the end of it so to me Borussia Dortmund is sort of a model club um, unfortunately from what I saw in Legia Warsaw and Aroma 
this hasn't been taken on board. If we go yeah, looking back two years, Polish football's record on racism was heavily scrutinised ahead of the 2012 European Championships. So you would suggest that these these fears of racism towards black players were had some foundation when you were in Poland with Lecce? Um, it's a very good question, and that Panorama programme is an interesting case study in how the media present things and the impact it has, because there are two two things at work here. One is fundamentally, I I feel, and this is it's person, a personal opinion, is that the British media are very good at pointing their finger at other people. Almost to say, it suggests that racism has, has dissipated in Britain, um, and look at these foreigners, are they uncivilised in comparison to, to Britain? Now, let's not get away from the fact that Britain had, has very similar problems in the 1970s and 1980s. Um, although the fantastic work has been done by the FA, by the Premier League, by Kick It Out, by uh, anti-racism campaigns across Britain, it's not to say that the battle has been won and that it can, can be consigned to history. So there's something very insidious, I think, about the media presenting uh, foreign leagues and foreign groups in this way. It's also slightly worrying in that football fans aren't homogenous and um, it's very difficult to suggest that all groups are um, far right or right wing um, or racist. However, um, I did see uh, far right uh, stickers uh, associated with Legia Warsaw. Um, Legia Warsaw have been fined for by UEFA for racist chanting uh, this season in the Champions League, right at the very start of the season against the Welsh side. Um, and last season, um, they were fined for displaying a massive uh, banner saying Jihad uh, Legia, uh, written in Arabic script um, when they played, I think it was Hapo Tel Aviv, um, or Maccabi Haifa, sorry, I think it was, um, in the Champions League, so or the Europa League. So it was obviously about you know, creating this very antagonistic approach to, to rivals, which let's, let's not get away from the fact that this, this is part and parcel of football culture. There's this culture of abuse where fans will uh, criticise opponents and, 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 um, and belittle them in various ways. That could be about how, you know, what a shit town they live in or um, about the quality of their players or, you know, um, uh, you know, chanting British in an English about you know, shit ground no fans. It's about a way of saying, well, if you're that, we're not that. And racism's incorporated into this this culture of abuse. Is it's about saying, well, if you're black or gay or or feminine or you have long hair or you are something, you are less masculine, you are less um, than our group, and we are therefore superior to you. One of the aspects of your report, I think, when you were in Italy, focused on the idea of what qualified as real racism and what qualified as merely, like you say, football supporting, part of uh, chanting, banter, I guess. This stems more towards like education, which takes place outside the ground. Is this something that football can really hope to tackle on its own? I mean, we shouldn't get away from the fact that racism is part and parcel of everyday society. Um, when we have uh, political 
parties and again we don't need to look very far from Britain to see political parties commenting on British people. Um, Lenny Henry has been it's been suggested that Lenny Henry should go back to a black country. It is therefore not going to be surprising if those sort of views are also not going to be reflected in football, which is the most popular sport in Europe, in well, the world. Um, and likewise, political parties in both Poland and Italy have been particularly xenophobic. Yeah, so don't be surprised if, if, if the, in, the, in the stadiums there certain things aren't going to be said. Looking at Borussia Dortmund also, in the past, far-right groups have looked to link themselves to Borussia Dortmund in Germany, but the club has more actively fought these links with itself. Absolutely. And I think that's what's so, what's so impressive about Borussia Dortmund is, you know, on one hand, you could say it's just a PR exercise, but they've gone so much deeper than just challenging, and they've taken it through the course of the the uh, Borussia Front, Sigi uh, Bochard, who... Um, who's the far-right leader of this particular group within Dortmund, has tried to associate Borussia Dortmund with his organisation. And far-right organisations have utilised football to recruit fans. The National Front did it in Chelsea in the 1970s. Um, um, Far-right groups have done the same in Italy and in Poland. And this organisation in thing and they've been associated since the 1980s this combination of hooliganism and far-right extremism um, and as they've got more uh, sophisticated they're, they're utilizing other forms of association of course the football club particularly with someone like Dortmund is a strong powerful symbol uh, yellow and black is, is, is uh, seem to be everywhere in the city and you know, so much of the city seems to revolve around the football club and attract so many people. So it's a powerful symbol to, to want to attach to in order to promote one's um, ideology, which is exactly what um, the Borussia Dortmund are doing. So, but it's good that you know, clubs like Borussia Dortmund are actually challenging this, which isn't necessarily the case in Warsaw or in Roma. Um, you know, groups associated with the far right are still operating there. And this is partly because... And again, what comes back to your earlier question about what actually constitutes racism is we have to be very careful not to suggest that all football fans are far-right racists, or more importantly, that all people who exhibit racism are far-right, because most people aren't. Um, Only a handful of small groups utilise football for instrumental purposes to make a political point. A lot of racism is what uh, Les Back and, and John Solomon have called it sort of uh, organic racism. It's reaction to events on the pitch. You know, this culture of abuse where you know, it's about something's happened, you know, someone's, you know, someone's come in and made a bad challenge and the fans will use it as a way um, will attack that player in order to give their team an, um, an advantage. Now, this, what would be considered in these areas common sense understandings of racism is well if he's fat I'll say he's a fat bastard if he's bold I'll call him a bold bastard if he's black I'll call him a black bastard um, what they don't understand is of course they don't call someone a white bastard um, and they also don't engage in certain other ritualistic forms of racism against white people in certain ways 
and that a lot of this comes down to this fundamental understanding of what a racism is. Uh, in Italy in particular, um, is seen as a, a structural racism, i.e. Stri- uh, explicitly forbidding people from, for example, getting jobs, or from housing, or from welfare, or from the political process. Uh, the sticks and stones may break my bones uh, metaphor is, is, is pretty apt in Italy, is that words are just words, and they don't have any bearing or and more importantly, it's not going to lead to any of that political uh, uh, um, and structural racism. Um, to say so that's not the case in Britain or, or Germany, where we understand that actually the words are, are quite important. And that's what I was so impressed with at Borussia Dortmund, is that their ultras group, the Unity, um, went to the fan project and suggested organising a trip to Auschwitz uh, with, with some young fans. And the club last year supported this by loaning the, uh, the, the organisation or the group, the, the team coach, so the, 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 the young people, the young fans could go on the team coach to Auschwitz. And understand that when you start this culture of abusing someone else for being different, um, particularly on ethnic or religious lines, then a possible outcome could be very systematic um, um, exclusion and, and genocide. And what was so important with Borussia Dortmund is they linked it clearly back to Dortmund. So they said, look, this is what was happening in Dortmund at the same time. So it wasn't something abstracted in Poland, something abstracted historically, but it was something rooted in the locality. And that's something I don't think is quite understood, particularly in, in Italy and in Poland, that when you verbally abuse someone, then that actually can create a culture which permits the more structural racism to, to operate. You mentioned earlier that the great work that organisations like Kick Out have done in the UK over the past 20 years. How do you think Britain compares to these countries that you've studied? I mean, one thing we have to put into position and into context is the fact that Britain has a longer history of immigration. So the, the, the problems that are impacting Italy and Poland now were happening in, Italy, in England uh, 30 years ago and around football. So these things aren't unique to Italy or Poland, but they, you know, they were happening here. Um, Italy only really started becoming a nation of immigration in the 1980s, Poland in the last 10 years, really. So they, they're experiencing situations that challenges their notion of, of nationality. And you know, again, that's not completely far removed from what's happening in Britain at the moment. What does separate and, and create a distinctive situation in, in England is that we have a certain civil society that has grown up partly in the liberal tradition um, where politicians tended to uh, although Britain centralised quite early, um, politicians did tend to leave themselves out of civil society. They only sort of got involved in, in, in some, um, economic aspects, really. Whereas in other countries, um, Italy, for example, um, Germany, and, of course, uh, Poland, they've all been party to strong centralised uh, government, um, either fascism, Nazism in, in Italy and Germany, or communism 
in Poland, which has a, a significant bearing on the civil society that operates around it. Since the war, however, Germany has um, developed quite a strong civil society, it's a very consensus-building society, partly because the, uh, the constitution that was implemented after the war was about creating consensus so that no individual or party could sort of assume such strong control. Um, which I think it ex- explains why they have organisations like fan projects which are about really consensus building um, organisations associated with a football club, associated with the fans and the authorities, which is about communication and negotiation. Whereas in Britain we don't really have that culture um, of consensus, but we do have a strong sort of civil society where we want, where groups will emerge to deal with specific problems that aren't being tackled by the state. There's wide, numerous charities in Britain, numerous charities. And the anti-racism campaigns sort of feed into that, to be quite honest. And a lot of these come out of the 80s and 90s when football was going through a bit of a transformation, partly down through things like racism and hooliganism, anti-social behaviour, but also by the 90s with this economic transformation and commercialisation that we see now. And fans started to politicise around these sort of issues. Racism became incorporated into this and said, well, this is something that is actually unacceptable within um, our sport. And fans themselves took it upon themselves to fight and to challenge um, and support players who were were victims of this abuse. And let's not forget the players themselves stood up and, and, you know, the culture of football is often that, you know, to be a man, you have to shut up and just put up with abuse. Um, and that was what a lot of uh, black players were um, accused of when they first started raising the issue, saying, oh, you know, you should just rise above it. You know, you're too thin-skinned, you've got to develop a thick skin. Um, but actually, you know, thanks to their strength and the support of fans, they actively campaigned against some of the clubs and the federations to sort of take this, this issue seriously. So we have to explain it within a certain culture within Britain, which doesn't necessarily translate into other, uh, other cultures. English football kind of sees racism as a, a European problem, as something that exists on the continent and that we've largely eliminated. But if you look at English football's makeup in terms, it's very monolithic in white, old, middle class, upper middle class men. Do you think that the fight against racism will always be on the back burner, given the makeup of the people who govern the game? I think ultimately it will always be a fight against the people that are in positions of power and how well they reflect the wider makeup of of the group they supposedly govern. Um, it doesn't always have to be along racial lines, but it can, it can equally about be any number of um, demographic lines. The issue, and this is why I think we've got to be very careful about saying racism's been removed from Britain. You know, we've had a couple of very high-profile cases with players, you know, Louis Suarez and John Terry, um, and there has been some incidences of, of very localised, individualised racism in, um, in some games in the last couple of years in Britain. But we've got to, you know, we've really got to ask ourselves the question, why are there so few black managers? Um, we can we can argue that there's a there's a demographic lag as as players that that generation of players from the 70s and 80s have started getting the coaching roles when they retire. Well, we're in that we're in that space now, and there should be far far more um, 
proportionally uh, a, far, a far greater proportion of black and ethnic um, minority ethnic uh, coaches based on the number of players over the last 20 years let's be honest this composition is particularly is exactly the same within uh, the boardrooms um, and within the football federations um, and you know, it's a very slow process but it's one of those areas which is very hard to fight because most people are very you know, very keen to combat the the very vocal expression of something in a, in a stadium that can draw attention to um, and it, it draw negative attention to someone's club but it's it's much harder than to get into the the corridors of power. Um, situation I think in Manchester United is quite interesting in this case is uh, David Moyes was sacked after the fans started getting on his back Equally, but for much much longer the fans have been wearing green and gold scarves have been campaigning against the Glazers and unsurprisingly the Glazers are still there so when fans start campaigning against certain groups like managers or players then um, often they get their own way but when it actually comes to challenging those in the boardroom they very rarely get their own way. And that's the issue with something like racism is how do we campaign when we have very little power in the boardroom? And I think this is why it's very important that fans get involved in other forms of political engagement like football, uh, like supporters' trusts to try and get a voice in the boardrooms so that we can challenge some of these demographic problems as well as having a voice about some of the issues about our club. www.podacademy.org and follow us on Twitter at PodAcademy. We currently have a series of programmes reflecting on the 20th anniversary of the Rwandan genocide and a study on child poverty in the developing world. This has been Pod Academy. I've been Alex Bird. Thanks for listening.